This is the Everything EV Podcast by EV Powered. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Everything EV Podcast, the podcast dedicated to everything electric. I'm your host, Charlie Atkinson, and in these episodes, we'll be discussing everything to do with electric travel. So whether it be cars, bikes, boats, or even planes, we'll have it covered. We'll also be speaking to people from within the industry to get their views on the EV space, as well as other features such as electric car reviews, electric motorsport coverage, and much, much more along the way. This podcast is available on all streaming platforms, so be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from to receive every single episode as soon as it's released. And please do go back and check out all our other episodes too. In this episode, we're joined by Dave Budge, the co-founder of Australian EV conversion firm Jaunt Motors. Jaunt upcycles classic Land Rovers into electric vehicles that can explore the bush and the outback sustainably. Having launched the company three years ago, the company has seen an amazing growth and Dave is here to talk about the journey of the company and the cars themselves, as well as sharing his hopes and dreams for Jaunt. Okay, so Dave, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Now, could you just talk to us about your background first of all and how you've ended up where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I'm Dave and I run Jaunt Motors, or one of the founders of, of Jaunt Motors. And I, for someone who runs a car company, I'm not a car guy. Uh, so I didn't get a driver's license until I was 27, I think. Uh, grew up trying to be as as much of a, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s hippie as I could and minimize my impact. And I lived in a city and I didn't really need a car. But I did love uh, getting out into the bush and, and, you know, look, to be honest, I probably bummed a lot of rides off friends and things like that. It wasn't like I was completely anti-car, but um, I, I did love getting out in the bush and hiking and, and four-wheel driving and all those kinds of things. And that kind of led me to my buying my first vehicle, which was an old uh, Land Rover Discovery, and it was a diesel because I was able to make my own biodiesel. And so... Now I can look at that in hindsight and think, hey, I, look, I was always interested in, you know, alternative fuels or something like that. But um, that felt like a, just a one-off thing. And I was at that time and, and for a long time, for 15 years, I worked in, uh, I guess, digital arts communication. So that was, you know, 20 years ago, that was working in CD-ROMs and then the internet, mobile and, and also uh, spent a number of years uh, running a film production company. So documentary, film, television, um, and a bunch of different things like that. And always, I guess though, the thread that tied those together was, yes, they were often communication, but it was emerging technology and how that enabled communication uh, or that enabled a new, you know, something. So sort of application of emerging tech uh, that was at this sort of cusp where some of the biggest engineering challenges had been figured out, but the mass adoption or the the you know understanding from the wider public or or using it in it in a different way hadn't really been done yet. So I came into this after you know after a, a number of years just previous to this in I guess I guess you'd probably call it consulting in a sense. So so a lot of um, you know a lot of digital strategy and and those kinds of things, but also building. Uh, working with emerging tech and building physical things. So for the first time, I was not just using that tech, whether it was, you know, new computers or camera systems or whatever, it was actually, you know, building some physical things and electronic products with a team, with a great, you know, team. And I think that's been another part of my journey is I've always been, I've been, a, I've been just smart enough to understand the stuff 
to know that who's good at it and who's a great designer and who's a good engineer. And my skill has been really able, you know, is being able to sort of talk about that and get excited about that and, and figure out what the vision and application of that is. So when I sort of, when all those kind of things came together, I, I was, to be honest, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next in my, in my life, in my career. And each of those, you know, that those previous kind of stints in different industries and stints, I mean, you know, five, six, seven years at a time, but I'd been excited about the tech and I'd love the people and I'd loved what we were building with it. But I'd often found that I, the, the bigger mission kind of wasn't there. At the end of the day, you've kind of, the newness has gone and the discovery has gone and you're like, well, I'm helping big companies make more money. Um, and that's, that's, you know, maybe I'm making good stuff and solving a real problem. Um, but uh, I, I kind of want something more. And, and so I was looking at, um, looking at really what I could do in terms of what was I good at? What was, you know, what could I, what do people want to actually pay me to do? What does, what does a society need? So in an Australian context and what do I want? And, and maybe I'm, reverse engineering some of this or, or kind of shoehorning something in there. But this this kind of seed of what Jaunt has become was there. The idea that like literally I was driving a, a, a Land Rover Defender. I had a Land Rover Defender and I just wished it was electric because I wanted to I, I wanted to hear the sounds of the bush. Uh, I wanted all the benefits of an electric vehicle. And also I felt I started to feel more and more guilty as we were going on longer trips that particularly in Australia, you know, the distances are huge and that can be amazing. But you also realize that, oh, let's go on holiday to this place and you've driven 2000 kilometers and burned hundreds of liters of diesel to get there, to get to the pristine, natural, crisp air. But what, what's the trail that I've left behind of carbon and pollution and all these kind of things. But it's nice to think that I want an electric one of those, but doesn't mean I can buy one. And, and so particularly like three years ago when we started, there's no Cybertruck announced. Rivian's doesn't, you know, Rivian's still in secret mode. There isn't anything on the market that is in any way close to that. And I think that when you've got a personal problem or desire, and you can look at that and, and think that is there a societal sort of problem or desire, then potentially you've got, you know, a good business there, a good idea for a startup. And in, in that societal context, Australia is the largest uh, has the largest ownership of four-wheel drives per capita anywhere in the world. It's not the United States. It's not somewhere in the Middle East. It's it's here in Australia where if you look at the car sales, maybe say the top 15 cars sold every month, maybe only two or three of those aren't like dual cab pickups or SUV, big SUVs. Um, you know, so only a couple of them and you've got to get quite far down the list before it's even something like a golf, like a normal hatchback, right? So, so we have this, I think there's a global automotive marketing has latched onto the fact that every Australian feels like one day they're going to need to go properly into the outback and do this camp, giant camping adventure. Now, a lot of people do, but most people don't. So it's become this, this idea of a lifestyle vehicle. And, and you know, look, look modern, modern culture is full of these things where we're buying, you know, these extreme things. That, that can do have capability, whether it's clothing or cars or whatever, that has capability that we're never going to take advantage of, but it's fun to own it or something. So there's been this, this crossover of a, a true need for, for a small number of people and then that being 
you know, expanded upon and being and being sort of becoming the most popular thing in the market. So we've got this huge number of, of four by fours sold and a very, very small number of electric vehicles. It's getting better now, particularly Model 3s out here and all those kinds of things, but but we were one of the lowest adoptions of, and still are one of the lowest adoptions of EVs in the OECD. So you had this, so, but if you look at that and you go, well, where are the four, Australians buy, Australians buy four by fours, Australians aren't buying EVs, where are the four by four EVs? I don't know, it's, it, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of maths and statistics to do to kind of look at that and, and kind of infer that there might be some correlation there. So it's, I could look at that and go, I, I reckon if, if I just, you know, here's a picture of an old Land Rover and you write electric above it, does that get people excited? And it did, um, as you can imagine. So Land Rovers have a particular relationship here in Australia. It's a little bit different to in the UK. Um, they are basically sales of Land Rovers dropped off. So in the 60s and 70s, Australia was buying maybe half the, I think the stats are it was at certain points, half the Land Rovers being produced were coming to Australia. So they were everywhere, every government department, every farm had one. And then Toyota came into the market and Nissan and all these Japanese brands, they were more reliable, they had a better dealership network, all those other things. And so they really took over and Land Rover kind of faded away a bit, but they didn't, no one threw them out. They just kept them on the back of the farm and you know, dry climate and all these things, I mean, they, and aluminium bodies I mean they're still there. So there's this certain, uh, while you don't see them every day as working farm vehicles anymore, everyone has something something in there. Like my uncle had one or I learned to drive in one. They're there and they're just at this point of nostalgia. And the shape of them is something that everyone recognises. I mean, I think that's probably true everywhere in the world. That idea, that shape of, of a Land Rover means four by four, uh, you know, it means safari and it means all the, all the connotations that it has. So... For us, we we sort of came into this with this this kind of these these sort of seeds of an idea, and going okay, we can we can both you know. So Martin and I, so I brought these kind of early seeds. I mean, this is the, this is the key part of it too. As I came to a, a friend of mine who I'd worked on and off together with for sort of 12, 13 years, and um, and we'd always had a great working relationship where I think we. I guess we describe it as like we disagree constructively. So I'm kind of coming from a creative design approach. She's coming from an operations production approach. We have the same goal, but the, perhaps the priorities are, are different. Um, and I think together there's a, there's a nice balance there. So I sort of came to her uh, while I was working with her on a job and she said um, she was a bit unhappy in her role. And she was like, oh, we should start a business. I've got an idea for a business to start. And I was like, well, I've also got an idea of business that has nothing to do really with what we've done before, has no connection. We don't know anyone in the industry. We're not from this industry, but here's the pitch. And, um, and she was very, very excited and we, uh, and, you know, we jumped in. And so that, that kind of, I guess, you know, what we did believe that we brought to the table, uh, naively maybe, but we've you know, made it work, um, is that we were good at, you know, finding the right people and working with people to bring that that together and and I think a lot of in a lot of these cases it's of course you know you know some some startups are founded because that one person is is literally the best at that 
that thing, but often it's because no, they're the best at having the vision for the thing and then bringing the team together of specialists to do to do the individual tasks. So, so we knew that we could have that vision. We could we could add a layer to what had been done in EV conversions, which for a long time was done by say hobbyists or it was done by engineers who made it made them work, but didn't necessarily make them friendly. And by that I mean you get into some of the, you look at EV conversions from 10 years ago or five years ago, and it's like flip this switch and do this and understand all these electrical terms and and not just turn the key. And I always imagine like if I was to build a car, I'm building an EV conversion for my mum, what is she going to, what is she going to be able to do it? So how can we make these as approachable as possible. And that also meant making these old four-wheel drives more approachable too. And that, you know, but inherently you make them more approachable by making them EV. No one understands how to use a, a choke to start a car and all the other things that you've got to get right to start up a, you know, a 50, 60 year old car. So we knew that we could bring this, this experience in, in sort of design user experience Branding is, is important as well. We're trying to sell a, you know, and it's an expensive product. Um, and we knew we needed to reach an audience that wasn't thinking about engine swaps, which I guess this is. And, that, and that's a very kind of um, car culture. Most people don't know that you can swap the engine out of your car and put a different one in, whether that's more powerful V8 or electric. So for us, we knew that we had to go out and sell a car, not a conversion even though that may be the service we're offering and whatever, but, but the options there for people to come up and just go, I love that shape. I want a four wheel drive and I want it, I need it to be electric. And, and, and I would like one jaunt please. And I'd like it in blue. So we sort of, sort of, that was our kind of thinking that we could, we could make something like this work. We felt that the, the appetite was there. We did a bunch of research and different things as, as much as we could, you know, with a PowerPoint deck and, and no, no spend. And that was kind of, uh, that's sort of where it, where it kicked off. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier. Obviously, you spoke about that sort of lack of societal change in Australia and that there's always been that desire for pickups and not so much for electric cars. So I was just wondering how business has been for you guys since you launched three years ago. How has the company grown in that time? Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we are Australian. Australian culture is quite interesting. Um, Obviously, I'm speaking about all this from the inside too, and I, you know, I have these 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 same uh, hangups and foibles as every other Australian. But we we tend to be as a culture um, very very slow to adopt things, and then very very quick. So once something becomes, uh, you know, once someone sees the the guy next door with an with an electric four by four, then they get one. It just it just happens. The the uptake is very quick. And then it becomes very, very high penetration very, very quickly. Um, and it, even, you know, you could look at, you know, we're just talking about COVID, right? You could even look at, at vaccination rates. Australia nationally is about 95, 96% vaccinated. So we were one of the last countries to start vaccination. Suddenly we're some of the most vaccinated. And, and, and crazily that you could put that, plot that curve against, I don't know, DVD player adoption or mobile phone adoption or something. It, it seems to be... Um, seems to be the way of things here. So we knew though that we are not trying to sell 100,000 vehicles where we only need to sell a few to start. And that is always going to be to a niche audience. So we play on that, you know, boutique custom designed 
nature. We, we're building very, very exclusive things, and that speaks to a certain audience of early adopters who, you know, have the, you know, have the the time, the money, the desire to to build that kind of very unique product. And then slowly we we are able to develop the technology, add a little bit of scale, you know, reduce a little bit of cost, and slowly get that to something that can be more of a mass market adoption. The other thing to consider though is that when we're talking about that high level of, of four by four adoption here, that's also a high sort of average price per vehicle that we have. If everyone was buying Volkswagen Polos, sure, it's you know it's pretty cheap, but but everyone's buying. 50, 60, $70,000 pickup trucks, and then going and adding another $30,000 of accessories on top of them, better suspension and bull bars and all these other, all these other things. So people are spending a lot of money on vehicles. And so having something that, you know, that if we can in a few years get to a point where a conversion is a drive in, drive out, two week, one week, two week turnaround process that costs $50,000, that's something that suddenly becomes uh, you know, very, well, I'm not going to say mainstream, but very close to that and, and become something that's actually quite, uh, I guess, a, seen as a, quite a viable option when you've already put a hundred and something thousand dollars of investment into a vehicle to make it your own. The comparison of spending $50,000 to convert it compared to $150,000 or whatever a Rivian or a Cybertruck, if they ever come here, will be starts to starts to make a little more sense. So do you think that for the overall transition to electric vehicles for Australia, considering the culture of wanting pickups and SUVs like we've discussed, do you think EV conversions are almost perfectly suited to that market rather than just an off-the-shelf EV from an OEM? I think it is. There's a big car culture here. Um, I guess, you know, Australia sort of sits all in so many things somewhere between the UK and the US in terms of cultural attitudes to things and and an adoption of certain things. So we do have a have a car culture that you know correlates in some ways to to the UK in some ways to the US. But there's a lot of um, you know it is big distances and it's all that. So there is a there is a certain crossover with the US. But we have so so people the idea of conversions and customization and personalization of vehicles is huge. And so is the I guess the 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 time we hang on to it we have one of the oldest vehicle uh fleets i guess nationally in the in the world people hang on to cars for a long time and they can do that because you know we it's a very dry climate we don't have salt on the roads in winter and all of these things so cars last a long time that's also been you know we don't have regular emissions checks we don't have yearly roadworthy checks things that most other countries do for just general safety and and usefulness but we don't have those, which has meant that we actually do have a lot of old vehicles that are still on the road and, and they don't get, you know, they don't get junk. So, so we've got this particular association with cars that people really do want to hang on to them and keep using them. And I think that then when we combine that with the fact that, you know, from terrible, terrible adoption of EVs to, I think there was a couple of months at the end of last year where Model 3 was the Tesla Model 3 was the highest selling car in, in the country. Now, Tesla doesn't release sales data. Everyone was waiting on, on big shipments to cut like, you know, thousands to come on one ship. So those months were particular gluts, but that is still remarkable compared to where we came from even a year or two ago, um, where it was like 0.1 of 1% of, of sales. So people have, 
you start to get these people who've had a ride in someone's Tesla and they get it and that performance is and all the other things that you get out of EVs and they they ask a question around where can you charge and suddenly show someone shows them a map and they realize that charge points are everywhere and every you know every PowerPoint is a charge point and all those kinds of things start to shift attitudes really one person at a time and then we see inquiries now that, that are different to what we saw even a year ago of, of people going, oh, yeah, I've, I've been really considering, you know, I know that this is where my four-wheel drive is going to have to be. I know I'm going to do this one day. It's this very common attitude of I don't know what electric car or if I want to buy an electric car today, but I know it's going to be my next car, whether that's converting or whether that's, you know, buying a new one. Just off the back of that, obviously, you mentioned the legacy of petrol and diesel cars in Australia. And when people say they recognise they're going to have to switch to electric vehicles at some point, how much of your job is actually educating people about the benefits of an electric car? Or do your cars and your projects speak for themselves, really? I think that's true in the in the wider industry of EV sales. And so, you know, uh, Hyundai, Kia, Tesla are doing that kind of work for us because I think people are not coming to us to on the fence about whether to buy, you know, uh, a, a restored 1960s Land Rover in petrol or a restored 1960s Land Rover in electric. So we have a, you know, a very small number of customers who are coming to us with, you know, knowing exactly what we do and have already made up their minds about that. So it is often a... It is often something where someone is perhaps fallen in love with the product and the idea of it, but hadn't necessarily really considered an electric car before. And there is a little bit of, I guess, just education that it's possible. But I think that because, because we're selling, I guess, in, in most circumstances, this is not someone's only car. We're not trying to get them to switch their habits. It's like, you know, that they're not seeing this as a big change or they're seeing it as something that they can work out over you know after they've sort of bought the vehicle okay great and now just to focus on the cars themselves for a little bit obviously they are electric and whenever you talk about an electric car you need to discuss the things like range and charging for example so could you just walk us through some of the technical specifications because as we've said in australia they're probably going to have to cover massive distances and so things like range are going to be pretty important aren't they yeah, so so we at the moment we focus on on Land Rovers, and, and that was a, a specific decision. You know, really simple vehicle, great shape, lots of parts availability. Uh, a car from 1958, you know, has interchangeable parts to one from 2015. So there's lots of benefits there. But then we, I guess, we really define that into uh, underneath. It's kind of into two two vehicles, which is kind of pre 1985 and post 1985. And that's sort of apart from you know, you can I could get it very Land Rover technical nerdy here but basically it went when it went from series land rovers to defenders um coil springs versus leaf springs and so what we see and what we sort of sell i guess is the older land rovers are something that people aren't no one's looking to cross deserts in these cars yes some people still do and and yes you can and whatever but but these are seen as people are using these as a as something to get to their beach house or get from their beach house to the beach drive around on a, on a, their Sunday drives, you know, it's, they're cool vehicles, they, they're to, to small inner city commutes. So they're not, uh, they're not these cars that are going to do, you know, that people are wanting to do a thousand kilometers a day and it, they're uncomfortable, right? You don't want to do that, that much driving. 
Now, so, so, so what we do, you know, we do a very small, um, so in the series vehicle, so this is pre-1985, um, we, we do a very small battery pack. We do a 28 kilowatt hour battery pack, which, we, which no one buys. Uh, everyone upgrades to the 50, 53 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, and that will get, um, uh, you know, on highway, the, the, the sort of mileage is, is pretty terrible. We're talking about, a, you know, maybe 150 kilometers of range, but that's purely to do with the aerodynamics of the old Land Rover. So that, that range isn't fantastic. If you're doing um, under sort of 80 kilometers an hour, 60 to 80, you might get 250 kilometers of range. And that's realistically what most people are doing. They're driving around town, they're driving on little country roads. Um, so they're getting somewhere around 200 kilometers on average. Then, then we do, when we do defenders, they have, um, we put much more powerful motors in uh, and we also offer, offer and do usually put much bigger battery packs in. So 75 kilowatt hour up to hundred kilowatt hour battery packs. And, and that enables those to do four or 500 kilometers of range, um, depending on how you're and where you're, you're driving them. And those are, those are, I guess, for a lot of people, true alternatives to uh, a, a choice of a modern vehicle that they might also be looking at. And often that might be a new Defender um, that they, you know, that isn't available as a full electric vehicle or they love the classic shape. Uh, and so these, those vehicles will have that, you know, 100 kilowatt hour battery pack, uh, CCS2 fast charge, so we're talking, you know, charge the car in under an hour kind of thing, as well as all the, you know, normal home charging and that kind of thing. So they are a true, I guess, alternative to a, to a new electric vehicle. Yeah, so is it always going to be Land Rovers or do you have plans to convert other types of vehicles over to electric in the future? No, so, so it's, not, it's not always Land Rovers, uh, it won't always be Land Rovers. That was an intentional decision by us to choose uh, a make and a model to focus on. It means we it was easy to say no to things which is important when you're a you know business that enabled us to then build a product rather than be a one-off sort of conversion workshop and we knew that we could capture sort of the you know hopefully the hearts and the minds and some of the wallets i guess of of that audience who, who really loves those vehicles and and i do too right and i knew them so that so that was a big part of it but we always knew that jaunt was about you know, I guess adventure vehicles, it was about four by fours. So it was about, uh, you know, taking the next step and looking, well, if we, we and basically almost following uh, in some ways Australia, which is really a proxy to the, to the world's history, the wider world sort of apart from the US history of four by fours, which was everyone in Land Rovers and then everyone in, you know, sort of early land cruisers and and then it's sort of growing from there as, we, as you go through the 80s and 90s. So we see... This, this idea of sort of classic four-wheel drives is what we continue in. And, and, you know, look, we get asked every day, when are you doing land cruises? When are you doing land cruises? And so that's, that's, what, that's going to be coming. Um, and we'll be looking at, uh, you know, I guess finding the right vehicles. We get asked to do some really quirky stuff, and I'd love to, but it's, but it's about finding that vehicle that sort of fits that same niche that has that, uh, I guess, there's enough of them that there's thousands of them. The parts are available because we can't be, you know, building a great EV drivetrain for a car we can't restore. Um, but I think cars also have to reach a certain volume to, to have that sort of place in sort of nostalgia, but in culture as well. It's, it's not those one or two rare cars that really everyone, um, you know, kind of remembers and has a, has a special place for. It's actually some of the cars that were really common at a certain point of time. So, so we'll continue to do these, you know, 
I guess the the most iconic. We sometimes call them iconic rather than classic. It's like it doesn't matter that it wasn't. No one considered it a, this amazing car at the time. It was just the car that the farmers bought. But now they've become this iconic thing um, that that will will continue to do those and and you know add models as we go. Okay, perfect. And now just to finish things up, I was wondering what does this year look like for you and for John, and what sort of short term goals do you guys have for twenty twenty two? Yeah, so so we've spent the last, uh, you know, we spent really spent the last couple of years and a very interesting couple of years, um, really developing the, the the product. And so we've just started out towards the end of last year delivering on, you know, I guess version one of our of our complete product. So it's not just the the you know EV conversion. It's a you know we do whole new dashboards and that integration and and you know better improved safety and steering and braking and all these other things that we've developed. And we're now really going from an R&D phase into a production phase. And so we'll now start to be putting out more and more vehicles. We've got some, our first, uh, I guess, defenders. So our later vehicles that have, you know, much, you know, much more power, much more forward drivability, all of that sort of stuff, and really do compete um, in, a, in a lot of ways with modern vehicles um, that are gonna be coming out. And, you know, we, we work very closely with a couple of companies uh, in the UK. You know, UK is, you guys have been, um, I guess, really leading a lot of EV conversion tech globally. And so we work with a couple of companies um, in the UK as suppliers and, and partners on a few things. And, and we'll be doing more and more of that and being able to kind of uh, share some resources so that we can continue to keep up with a, I, I guess, you know, comparable in, in many ways to, a, you know, going in and, and looking at a, a dealership for a, for a new EV. Um, so for us, it's about scaling up production getting more cars out there on the road and and hopefully doing some doing some cool stuff like first ev to cape york there's a bunch of four-wheel drive destinations in australia that are that are truly challenging so cape york which is that uh if you imagine a map of australia and there's that you know, pointy bit at the top you know getting right to the top there there's certain deserts that have particular tracks that crossing that you know people only have done it for the first time in the 70s kind of thing so there's there's a few amazing four-wheel drive destinations that I really hope that we can be the first EV to do some of those. That's all for this episode. Many thanks for listening. And if you liked it, then please do check out all our other episodes and be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from to make sure you get every single episode as soon as it's released. For daily news coverage, features and much more, you can also head over to evpowered.co.uk. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you on the very next episode of the Everything EV Podcast.